But let me start off with, um, with uh, a story or an individual. Probably many of you know who Nelson Mandela is. Uh, he was the president of South Africa. Uh, and he fought for most of his life, most of his life to make a difference during, in South Africa during the years of apartheid where blacks were treated as second-class citizens in that, in that country. And he ended up being imprisoned for 27 years, treated harshly. And to the surprise of many, later he was elected, incredibly, he was elected uh, the president of South Africa. And when he had the opportunity to lead, when he had the opportunity to be in charge, he could have led in the same way he was treated. He could have led using the same systems that came against him. He could have led with the same tactics against others that were used against him. And he could have done all that to have his way, to, to create the country that he dreamed of. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He led in a way that both surprised and opened people up to new possibilities for that country to become a different country. In fact, he even included uh, a Christian leader there, uh, Desmond Tutu, who led something called the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Initiative to really get underneath the surface of, of injustice and the harm that was done to people. And that just blows me away. And when I think about that, he became a witness to a different kind of life. He became a witness to a new kind of life. And I want you to think of that human example, that secular example, and I want you to keep this image in mind as we read this morning's text. We've been going through Revelation the, this last few weeks, and we've jumped into a mini-series, Revelation uh, chapters 6 to 20. We're taking a big chunk of Scripture. But today, we're going to slow it down, and uh, we're going we're gonna to just take one parable that's halfway through, or part of the vision that's halfway through the letter, that helps the church remember the way it's meant to interact with the world around it, even when the world is hostile towards it, and reminds the church um, who it is. And this is right in the center of Revelation, chapter 11. It's 22, 22 chapters. So if you've got your Bible, um, you can open it up and read it with me, uh, or we're going to have it on the screen as well. So chapter 11, verse 1. And uh, this, if you remember, if you were with us last week, this is an interlude in, in the series of sevens. Uh, as John has this, these visions, uh, there's a vision of uh, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And in each of the sevens, there's, uh, there's always an interlude between the sixth and the seventh. And this is one of the interludes. There's two interludes, and here's one of them. Then I was given a measuring rod. This is John speaking. And I was told, come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days, wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. 
For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And when they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them, at that moment there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. You think we should pray and ask for like, what does this mean? Right, let's, let's do that. Lord, would you, we just pause right now and, and uh, I know I'm laughing, but we... We, are, we really long for you to speak to our hearts and help us understand what you call us to and who you call us to be and what you long for your church to be uh, in the middle of this world that you've created, even though the world is broken in this state, Lord. We just, uh, we long to hear from you in that way and understand the scripture, so uh, help me even as I walk through this. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, much of Revelation, as one author, Daryl Johnson, often says, it's not what it seems to be. We see things, we read things, we, we see these images, and it's not always what it seems to be. There's something else going on. And if you've, if you've been with us in the last two series we did in Revelation and also this month, you know that we're, taking, uh, we're not taking a predictive approach to reading Revelation. We're taking a pastoral prophetic approach. But if we were taking a predictive approach and we came across a scene like this or a vision like this, we would look at it some way in a literal sense and anticipate that at some point in history, before new creation takes place, where Jesus returns and, and, uh, and, and literally, uh, you know, things transform, we would, if we would take it literally, we would be waiting for two people to arise one day in the middle of a chaotic world. They would have to be known. They would have to be somewhat, not famous in a, in a positive sense, but famous in a known sense. They would, because of their message, because of their speaking on the Lord's behalf, they would be killed because they were telling the world about Jesus. And then only to be risen from the dead at some point, three and a half days later, where the whole world can see them and there's a massive response worldwide. And this couldn't happen in the first century or the second or the third or even the tenth because who had the technology to know and see this take place? So if we read this in a predictive sense, we might say, oh, well, the, the technology we have today, um, you know, satellite images and cell phones and TikTok, I mean, if this happened, it would be all over the internet, right? And so we look at that and say, oh, this, this if we look at it in a predictive sense, we're like, this could happen and will happen and the whole world's going to see it. But we're not taking a predictive approach. We're not taking all these sequences happening one after another. We're taking a pastoral prophetic approach. Like Daryl Johnson often says, not everything is as it seems. And in fact, I want to quote him now. He says this, that John speaks to us through symbols and images already known to him in his first audience. In other words, there's layers when John writes this. Layers of the Old Testament, layers of the gospel, layers of their first century culture in Rome, layers of these metaphors. And so instead of predicting a future time, what I want to invite us to is to consider that this message, even this one short vision or parable here, 
reminds the church of who they are and what their primary vocation is. Vocation is the word that means that's something that calls us out to something, that calls us to do something. So we're going to have fun today because I think, well, maybe it's only fun for me, but uh, we're going to practice. We're going to practice something. We're going to practice theological interpretation. What do I, what do I mean by that? I mean, like, we're, we've read the text, and, like, I don't always be like this. I don't always kind of teach in this way, but I want us to just say, hey, like, how do, we, how do we deal with texts like this, and how do we interpret them theologically in a, in a way that we've been talking about, pastorally prophetic? And my suggestion is that we see this telling us what the church is and what the church is about. But why would, why would I say that? Why would we say that? And John starts off this vision, and he's given this measuring rod. And, the, and, and as he's given this measuring rod, maybe a stick or in our day and age, it'd be like, you know, a, a measuring tape or whatever. And he's told, come and measure the temple of God. Obviously, one measuring rod cannot possibly measure a whole you know, building. Come and measure the temple of God. Now, while the Jews did have a temple in AD 70, it was destroyed. But it was a place where they, the Jews believed where God dwelled. And something Jesus did when he came in the flesh and when he died and resurrected is he fulfilled the use of the temple. He fulfilled the function of the temple. He fulfilled, in fact, not only the function of the temple, he fulfilled the function of the, of the tabernacle, the function of the Torah or the law. And it's interesting because we would not say that in the future God's going to you know, reinstate the law of Israel. He's fulfilled the law of Israel. He came fulfilling the purpose of the temple. Later he sends his Holy Spirit. And this is what the New Testament church hears often from some of the letters written to them. You are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You are the temple of the living God. You are, I love this from Peter, you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Interesting that Jesus fulfills the purpose of the temple, then the church, because of the Holy Spirit, becomes a place where God's Spirit actually dwells. We're meeting today, and there's brick and mortar, and there's gyprock and paint and a floor, but when this place is empty, it's not God's temple, right? We are God's temple. When we come and we gather together, and in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, when Jesus is speaking to one of the churches, he says, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. He's speaking to Christians in the first century. You will become part of what it means to be the temple of my God. And as John has this kind of this idea of measuring, he's, he's called to mark out the difference between God's people and the rest of the world, the temple and the outer court. And in fact, the end of Revelation ends with this amazing promise, promise that God will come and actually dwell with his people. The word dwell is the word tabernacle. God will tabernacle. Don't say that in French. That might not work well, right? Um, <laughs> crazy. Sorry, I don't know why these things come to my mind at the worst time. But, but anyways, you know, right? But that's the word. God will tabernacle among his people. He will dwell with his people. He will dwell with those who are marked out. This is an Old Testament theme from Ezekiel 40. And so, so far, we've been reading sometimes, right? It's popped up several times in Revelation. God will seal his people. It's the sealed people of God. You will be sealed till the end. And the idea of being sealed is that you are God's people, and sometimes we think about even a mark on a forehead or an arm or on a door where we read it in Revelation and we forget that back in Deuteronomy 6, 
when Moses told people, hey, here, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, soul, and strength. He said, write this on the, door on the doorposts of your, of your houses. Talk about it to your children. Be present with them. To be sealed is to be God's people, to be protected from the chaos of the world imploding on itself. Not always protected in the moment, but protected ultimately. That's why this vision is about the church. This vision is also not just about the church, but it's the church's purpose, the church's vocation, or the word we get from these two people, the church's witness, to be a faithful witness. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy, to speak my word, to declare the gospel of my kingdom, to call the world out of its injustice and out of its sin and to God. Who else was given authority to be Christ's witnesses? It was the church. Jesus says, I, all authority has been given over to me in Matthew 28, and now I'm sending you, as you go, teach my commands. When in Acts chapter 1-8, you will become my witnesses as the Holy Spirit empowers you. You'll be a witness to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then here in this passage, again, we get this image we got in Revelation 2 and 3. Two lampstands. They're referencing the two witnesses, but who else was called lampstands? The church was the seven lampstands. In 11.4, we see this, again, the word lampstand. It's an idea of light in the darkness. You know, when I was looking at our, what we were singing for worship today, I didn't pre-plan it, Matt put it together, and then I was, we were singing today. I'm like, there's so many images of what's going on in Revelation 11. So Matt will probably end with that song again uh, from the third song. But then we have these two witnesses. And that's why, in a predictive sense, we will look for, oh, who are these two people going to be? But when we look closely to what this might look like with layers of the Old Testament, layers of the gospel, layers of, of cultural metaphors, we can even look as early back as the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses said, if, something, if somebody comes to make a claim against you, you need two witnesses to affirm this claim. This idea of, of a declaration of truth needed two people to affirm that this truth was true. We have these images of two witnesses. But then we get these images also, if we don't, if we don't read it carefully, of two major witnesses in the story of the scriptures. One is Elijah and one is Moses. Verse 5 and 6 tell us this. If anyone wants to harm them, fire harms these witnesses. Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. This is an image from uh, Elijah. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. Then he says, they have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during these days of their prophesying. And again, Elijah was one of the prophets that literally called out the rain to stop. And it stopped. And here's this point or nod to Elijah. But then it says, and they have authority to, for the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And where, where did this happen? It happened in Egypt as Moses was calling out Pharaoh. The water turned to blood and there were plagues. And so we have Elijah and Moses, both of these two, who also appeared beside Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. These two witnesses. And all through, all through Revelation, we hear about this word witness. And often there's an adjective before. Jesus is the faithful witness. The church is the faithful witness. You are called to be my witness and even though John is not given that title, John is writing this letter 
being persecuted on an island called Patmos, probably moving rocks. And he's writing this on the Lord's Day under persecution as a faithful witness. And so we see how this theme of faithful witness comes all through Revelation. And now we get this vision that points us to, if we look a little bit deeper, to what it might mean and what it might be calling the church to be. When you think about these years, and this is where it it triggers us sometimes. We see 42 months, three and a half years. We see 1,200 days or 1,260 days. We see these, and we know that numbers in in Revelation often, uh, you know, can can mean something. And we've said the number seven, like the seven seals mean completion. Well, here we have three and a half, which is not complete. The time is not finished yet. It's in between the times. It's in between. It's not yet in the complete time. And we have here between the resurrection of Jesus and the new resurrection or the, or the future resurrection, we have that th- this time when we as the church, whether, we're, whether it's our generation, the one before or the one after us, are in this time period where we're called to be the church. And where does it, this all happen? And it happens, as we read here in this text, it alludes to Jerusalem. never says the name, but it says the place where Jesus was crucified. But also alludes to Sodom, the city that was known as immoral or unjust, It wasn't just about immorality. It was also about injustice and how they treated the poor. And then Egypt, which was a country that was oppressive. And when you put it together, and and even the mentioning of these cities, all these overlaps, it's kind of like talking about New York today or L.A. or Chicago or London. These cities are not just, like New York is not just New York. New York is a metaphor for the cities of the world. Right? London is not just London. It's a metaphor for the cities of the world. And when you, when you hear this call to the church, the church is called to any city, anywhere, anytime, to be God's faithful witness in the middle of it. If we want to get very literal and predictive with it, we're going to have to choose. Is it Jerusalem? Is it Sodom? Is it Egypt? Is it another place? But if we understand it as a prophetic message to us, then we we can stop and say, oh, wait a second, God is calling the church to be his faithful witness in any city, anytime, anywhere. Small town, big town, New York, L.A., Montreal, wherever. And, and, And this is beautiful how the trajectory of the whole scripture moves, starts in a garden and ends in a city. The polis, the place where people are. And even as we read this, we get the first glimpse of something we're going to get to later next week, but it's, it's the image of this beast that comes out of the water and kills these two witnesses. The, the sense of the worldly systems and the worldly powers that are hostile to God's kingdom and people and mission. Remember a few weeks ago, the horsemen of war and conquest and greed and famine and death rampant in our world. Now, for the Jews or the Christians at the time, they would have seen Rome as the beast, Rome as the oppressor, Rome as the one who would come out of the sea and literally kill them or hurt them. And the early church was oppressed by Rome. If you remember our series back in the winter, right, some of these churches, some of its leaders, their bishop Polycarp was eventually killed because he was a Christian leader. Church leaders were killed by Rome. They were killed by the beast. In a sense, they were oppressed in that way. And this has repeated itself over and over in history where Whatever city or empire or ideology functions as the beast at times becomes hostile to God's people. And so when you read about these two witnesses and they're wearing what? They're wearing sackcloth. They're grieving. 
They're lamenting over the injustices of the world. That's an image. A sackcloth is an image of lament, is an image of repentance, is an image of weeping. And you get this Old Testament image of lament, of suffering, but also this call to repentance. So when we read scriptures like this, and this is why I said I'm going to do something a little different today. I want us to keep this in mind. One commentator, Bruce Metzger, he says he calls this an interweaving of symbols. An interweaving of symbols to help us see the church through the ages. We get the symbol of what it means to be a witness. The church is a witness. The church is prophetic. The church is repentant. The church is under pressure. Yet the church is protected. The church is filled with the spirit. The church is speaking God's word. So somehow, this is a beautiful message out of here. Somehow the church, and this is the title of this series, the church stands through the tensions of our world. The church stands through the chaos of our world. The church is sealed and empowered by the Holy Spirit even in some of the most darkest times, even in some of the moments where the church is hit or attacked. And I think for me, this, is, this next um, kind of summary is one of the most convincing reasons for me why I, I struggle, I, I say this in humility, to, say, to see it as a future event, but instead of a prophetic word. And I say this humbly because I'm not God, <laughs> I'm not Jesus, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. Um, like, please don't ask me what's happening next week, you know, or, or, ne- or next month or next year. But when I read this, when I, when I, what I'm going to tell you next is one of the most convincing reasons for me to see why this is about the church. And it's this reason. When you read this vision, this parable, it replays the life of Jesus. It replays the death and resurrection of Jesus. It replays the oppression that that religion and um, politics had against Jesus. And it replaces his death and it replaces his resurrection. Christ, the church will suffer like Christ, but the church is also promised to rise like Christ. Right? These two witnesses are killed by the beast, but three and a half days later, the breath of God fills them and they are resurrected. And so we get this replay of the life of Jesus. And here's one of the most important things, and this is why I wrote this on the screen for you. Right in the middle of Revelation, we get a retelling of the gospel story. Right in the middle of this letter, right in the middle of, of all that John has written, right in the middle of these visions, and it just so happens to be in an interlude, you know, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, but right in the middle of Revelation, we get a retelling of the whole gospel story, the story of the cross and the story of the resurrection all over again. And we are reminded in this moment of the church's vocation to be a faithful witness like Jesus was a faithful witness. That's what encourages me here. That's what just blows me away. That's what just reminds me this message is it's for you. It's for me today. It's not just a message for the first century church it was. It's not just a message for a church in other centuries. It's not just a message for the future. It's a message for today. It's retelling us the gospel and reminds us of our vocation. And here's the best part. When we read this, and we even sang about today, I was blown away that we were singing some of these lyrics. This is the way the world will come to salvation. In the way that it plays out Not exactly, not literally, but the idea of suffering as a witness before the world is a way that the world will come to salvation. And that's a countercultural way, not the way we think it's going to happen. 
My daughter and some of her friends rewatched one of my favorite animated movies. It's called Robots. They watched it this week and they reminded me of it. If you've never seen Robots, it literally is the best animated movie ever. Music and all that kind of stuff. And so it's about the robot on the, on the left. Um, and so uh, this, this robot, he, he wants to fulfill his dream. He wants to go to the big city. He wants to be an innovator. He wants to work for the company that, you know, makes all these cool things. And he has this dream and this purpose. Um, but he's, he's, wor- he's living in another town, and his parents don't have much money, and they have pretty ordinary jobs. But he wants to work for this innovative company in the big city, and he's drawn to the big city. He's drawn to the company. He's so excited to see what he's going to experience there, only to discover that the person behind the desk is selfish and narcissistic and greedy and has no regard for some of the other robots that are hurting just wants to scrap them all and make everything brand new without even considering what their life. And he chooses, but but, but this robot chooses a different way. He's, even though he was enamored with this and he had the gifts and the skills to be innovative and and to really play in to what this company was doing, he chose a completely different way. He chose a way of service. He chose a way of friendship. He chose a way of healing. He chose a way of nurture. And he wins in the end. And he wins in the end. He sees that the countercultural way that he took a risk on, which was service and friendship and humility and healing, actually won in the end. You see, John is writing to a church, just a little blip in the Roman Empire, just a little blip in these emerging cosmopolitan cities of the time writing to a church that was tempted to be successful in the ways of culture, tempted to be successful in the ways that, 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 that was happening in Philadelphia, in the ways that was happening in Ephesus, in the ways of these other seven churches. He was writing to the church that was tempted to be successful in their calling, but in the ways of culture. And th- this can happen to us, right? You get a great vision, you get a great dream, but then you, ac- you want to accomplish it in a way that is destructive, or you want to accomplish it in a way that has, it's not really what the dream is about. And we do that as a church sometimes. Just because we feel we have the best message and the most important message and, the, and we believe that God's building us into an authentic community, but then we borrow political means to get big and we borrow financial and famous and this and, and celebrity type of means to, be, to get the message across. See, they, even the first century church, if they could just, you know, use a little bit of the cultural story and power and resources, then maybe they could grow. Then maybe they could be something. Then maybe they could show Rome that they were a really good community, that they had something to offer. But Jesus is reminding them that that's not their calling. That's not how the kingdom of God works. It actually won't work that way. And church, the church through history has always been tempted We've been tempted. I've been tempted. Westside's been tempted. All churches have been tempted in every century, in every decade. Because we sometimes are pulled into this idea, oh, if we, if we can also be political, then maybe we could make the world look like us. If we can have a little bit more wealth, maybe we can build things that people will come to. If we can, you know, have more talent then maybe we could attract the world to come to us. You know, if we could have, like, lights and, you know, music and 
uh, beautiful artistic expressions. And these aren't bad things. They're wonderful things that the Spirit of God, you know, also inspires. But we're not in competition with Cirque du Soleil. Right? Like, like honestly. Like, seriously? Come to Westside and watch our circus. Like, what, what, what are we going to do? I'm not flipping back and forth. I don't think, I, like, you know, maybe some of you guys are gifted in that. But that's not going to be the feature film, right? You know what I mean? And, and so we get tempted. We're like, if we had more talent, maybe we could attract more people. If we had better slogans, you know, if the person who stood behind the mic dressed better, maybe more people would show up, you know, and all that kind of stuff and looked cooler and this and this and that. And that's just not the way that Jesus invites us to in Revelation 11 or throughout the scripture. See, this, this interlude in this vision reminds us that the only way the church was called to live on mission and to fulfill its vocation was in the same way of Christ. And that's a cruciform way. It's a cruciform way, a way where we lay down our lives for the sake of, of mission. It's death and resurrection. That's the beautiful part, there is the hope of resurrection. And what we find in this vision, and I don't know if you caught it because of the overlaps, but we find this great reversal that takes place in these words. And I can imagine that the first seven churches reading this were probably blown away because they caught some of the overlaps from the Old Testament. Verses 12 and 13 says this, Then they heard the people around watching these two witnesses who now rose from the dead, when they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. This, this mimics the ascension, right? Like this is the whole gospel story again. Come up here into God's space, into heaven. And, when, and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At the moment, there was a great earthquake, so natural disaster, and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to God. Now, you might look at that and say, those are bad numbers. I mean, one-tenth, like, even that's bad. And 7,000 from the city, that's not good. But when you look at, when, if you look at this as prophetic uh, imagination, and you look at this with all the themes in the Old Testament, you'll notice that when there was things that went down in the Old Testament, it was one-tenth that survived, not one-tenth that died. When Elijah was stuck and he thought, I'm all by myself, I'm all by myself, this queen is going to kill me, Who, God, you've left me with nobody, and then God opens his eyes and he, see, he, and he, and he sees like the Lord's help, but then he says, listen, Elijah, there's still 7,000 left in the people of, from the people of Israel that will, are part of your community. But it's 7,000 here that are lost in the earthquake. This is, a, this is just a huge reversal. This is a huge reversal of that. And in the Old Testament, the judgments, again, were often seen as the remnant stain and this small remnant stain, but something here is very different. Nine-tenths respond. Only seven are lost and the rest remain. And they respond and they give glory to God. There's something here that we rarely see on a day-to-day -day basis is where a lot of people are drawn to God and come to him and respond to him. And this, is the, this is a wonderful, great reversal here that happens. I, I, I don't want to get like, too into that and what that might look like and what that means. Uh, you know, like, is that, is that right now? Is that later? But we see this wonderful image that when we trust the way of the Lord, it might not always happen in our time period, but God 
and I go back to pieces of the, of the New Testament, God desires everyone to be saved. God desires so many to come to know him. God desires the world to, to, to come to understand who he is. Of course, many will not respond, but we get this sense that if, if we follow the way of Christ, not our way, God uses that. He empowers that. There's something beautiful and powerful there where God reaches the world in a powerful way. Somehow the church's faithful witness in life, in death, and in resurrection proclaims the kingdom of God in such a powerful way that many, many people turn to Jesus. And I think if the first seven churches were reading this, like, oh my gosh, we can't, I can't imagine that happening. God, you're going to use us even in our suffering? You're going to use us even if we die? But our leader was burned to the stake and our, that other leader was, was killed. You're going to use thi like this, this hurt and pain and suffering, you're going to use that to bring healing to the nations? That probably blew them away. And it should blow us away. I'm going to invite the, the band to come up as we come to a close. And I want us to realize that as much as this could be like a pretext for, you know, how God speaks to the world or reaches the world in some way, I don't mean in a literal way, but I just mean in the sense that God longs for people to come to know him as the church is the church. But I want you to know this has happened in pockets of history. There was an amazing movement called the Moravian Movement. They were a prayer and missionary movement in the 1700s. A wealthy 27-year-old. A wealthy, today it was like you'd probably say a wealthy 27-year-old who started Twitter or started PayPal, right? This was a wealthy 27-year-old. He was a count, so it was probably inherited money. Count Zinzendorf, that was his name. And he was rich, and at 27 years old, he, there was a refugee crisis, crisis with the Moravians. And he took initially just one refugee into his property, one refugee to come live with him. It turned into 300 refugees living on his land. 300 refugees came and lived on his land. This 300 people became a church community. He became like a pastor with them, and they did Bible studies and worshiped, and they got this hunger to pray. They got so convicted around prayer that they started praying 168 hours a week. That's all week, 24-7. They just said, every day, every hour, we need one person praying. And they started praying. That prayer meeting lasted 110 years. 110 years, they sent 70 missionaries from their 300 people's refugee group or community, 370 missionaries away, some of the hardest spots. Imagine us, imagine 20% imagine or more of Westsiders would just say, God's calling me to be a missionary, to, to like go to this part or this part or serve this area, serve this pocket of, pocket of the city or, or serve this. And one of, the, one of their, their unique calls to the missionary life, this was one of the hardest. They, many of them volunteered to become slaves in parts of the world that no one could get access to. And they had... In their prayer times, they, they got such a hunger, such a burden, such an empathy and, 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 and conviction for some of these people groups that they said the only way we can get there is if we also are with them. So they enslaved themselves voluntarily to, to be present with them. And I read this quote this week, and it said this, by, not, by 1734, every ship leaving the harbor with three Moravian missionaries headed to a mission field 
would pass a ship returning with two Moravian bodies to be buried. I don't know what the sentiment or posture was like on the harbor receiving those people. For every three Moravian missionaries headed to a mission field, they'd pass a ship with two Moravian bodies coming back to be buried. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this morning, you have to die. I'm not saying that. In fact, the word witness literally does not mean dying, but it it's the word martyr. It, it eventually became associated with dying because in certain segments of church history, Christian, some Christians did die as they were a witness. So the call is not to die. The call is to be a witness. Here we see the Moravians with this countercultural, sacrificial, faithful witness. And what... If you keep tracking with their story historically, you will see a great reversal taking place because of what they were doing. John Wesley, the great famous Methodist preacher who saw thousands come to faith and started thousands of small group Bible studies, he was convicted and called and had a burden for his vocation in a Moravian prayer meeting the 24-7 prayer movement that's happening all around the world. They just had their large gathering. And um, they started what they call boiler rooms, wherever they can, fi wherever they can find them, places where people would, would, would meet to pray and try and pray consistently, and just a movement of prayer. And this 24-7 has, has grown all over the world as a prayer movement, and it's been the major prayer foundation behind Alpha. It's been the main prayer foundation behind the Alpha course that has led thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people to Christ. Thousands. In fact, Nicky Gumbel, when the pandemic came, he was starting his 20th year of Alpha. And he was so nervous because the, in Alpha you have 10 weeks, but in the middle or later you have the, what they call the Holy Spirit weekend where they just pause and say, we're going to pray, we're going to spend some time, we're going to invite the Lord to work in us, not just our learning, but how God wants to work in your heart. And when he did his first Alpha 20 years ago, he was so nervous. He's like, Lord, I don't know if you're going to do anything when we just pause for a moment and say, welcome, Holy Spirit. And God blew him away. And the 20th year was during the, during the pandemic and everything went online. He's like, God, this is crazy. Like, we've never done Alpha online. Who's going to pause and pray? <laughs> and he said that they, when they paused and said, welcome, Holy Spirit, it was just a beautiful time that the Lord was working in people's hearts. And that's a phrase I love to quote. You'll hear me quote it. He said during the pandemic and during that moment, he said we could never, he goes, you know, Zoom is not a surprise to the Holy Spirit. Don't worry. And, it, and it's amazing because they would have three alphas a year and they were starting one alpha a week over the pandemic. One alpha a week. 24-7 has been part of the prayer foundation of Alpha. The leader of 24-7 prayer, Pete Craig, uh, serves with Nikki Gumbel and the Alpha team and, and their prayer support. So Revelation 11 was fulfilled in history, in pockets of history, in big ways and small ways. And maybe one day we're going to see it in an even bigger way. 
But don't think it's only, you're only waiting for it one day. God has, God has been doing this in pockets throughout history. And so there's a message for you and me that we can stand through whatever, wherever history takes us, we can stand through as a faithful witness. We can carry the message of the gospel of God's kingdom. We can be a prophetic witness in our world. We can communicate with words, but also in ways, in life, the ways of Jesus, humility, love, hum uh, service, sacrifice, suffering. And sometimes as we see even in this picture here, where the church died as a witness. But they always, they always had hope. I mean, imagine the first century church. I think my mic went off. Oh, the, the breath of God fills them and they're resurrected. Like, that is a hope that you and I have. That even in suffering, there's that hope. And so if you're here today and you're looking for hope, you're looking for life, to the fullest. This, what we just read today, don't just see it as, as odd language. I want you to see it as a retelling of the gospel story for you. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus longs for you to know him. That Jesus suffered on the path to the cross in death and, and burial for you. So you could know him. And he went through that and re resurrected from the grave and ascended into heaven. In other words, his lordship, his authority, his kingship is what we're called to, to follow him. And if you long for that life, then I just invite you to start following him, to start seeing him as lord and king so you could have life too. We're going to take a moment, and I, and I want to sing the song we sang. We're going to end with this song. Um, there's so many images in the song that we, we sang earlier that just remind us of this text the hope of the text, but also the call to be a prophetic, faithful witness as a mouthpiece, in a sense, in our world. Amen? So I can invite you to do that. Why don't we, why don't we stand as we sing this? And I'm going to just give you a moment, even as we begin to sing this, just to be present with the Lord. What is the Lord telling you? What's the conviction growing in your heart in this moment? What is God calling you into we we'll ask our prayer team to come and be ready in case people need prayer you can be prayed for today Holy Spirit thank you for how you've inspired and orchestrated um, even this, this letter we're reading today from John. Even though the images and the metaphors are apocalyptic, they, they sometimes shock us or get our attention or surprise us or, or bewilder us, God. We, we thank you that you are using this letter, God, to grab hold of our hearts. Help us to see our purpose as your church, measured out, sealed, empowered, protected, promised a future in resurrection and new creation. But Lord, trusting all of those wonderful promises that in the meantime, if there are moments where you call us to sacrificial mission, humble posture, 
following the way of Jesus. God, may we trust you in the fullest sense that your way is the best way. May we trust you for the results of your way as well. God, would you just grow a conviction in our hearts, in our church's heart, to be a faithful witness as a church in our city, in Montreal, in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in the places of our work, in our families, in our friendships, in our creative groups, in our art groups, in our book clubs. Oh God, we want to be faithful witnesses where you have placed us. And we thank you for the promise of your breath of life filling us one day to new creation and resurrection. Man, what a beautiful promise. God, open our eyes to see what you see, to pray what you long for, to participate in your mission. For some here today that just need to make a first step in following Jesus, God, would you give them the courage to make that step and trust that it is the best decision they can make. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, 